episode 37 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we're touching on evidence-based policing, social media, and police culture. Here you go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome to Tactical Breakdown. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. If this is your first time being here, welcome. If you are a returning listener, you've heard this before, but thank you so much for your love and support. I cannot say that enough. All right, before we jump into this conversation I had with my friend Amy Boudreau, I want to just let everybody know, if you haven't checked it out already, that we just did our instructor's roundtable on active threat response. We had Tim Kennedy, Dr. Mike Simpson, Brian Murphy, and Robert Carlson, four of the top guys in the world. It was a fantastic discussion. So if you haven't checked that out already, the breakdown.ca forward slash IRT, you can catch it on YouTube, you can rewatch it, and we're going to be releasing that audio version of it very, very soon right here on the Tactical Breakdown podcast. All right, today on the podcast, I am going to be talking to my friend, Constable Amy Boudreau out of Ontario, Canada. She is an international crime prevention specialist. She is also known as the Yoga Cop. If you check her out on Instagram, Facebook, or any of the other social media platforms, she's a writer, a public speaker. She provides subject matter expertise to news media. She does radio, podcasts, interviews all over the place, and she advocates evidence-based policing, law enforcement, social media practices, gender equality, inclusion, first responder wellness. She does a lot for a lot of different people, and it was my honor to have her on the show today. So we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you really do, make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. And uh, let's jump right into this episode with Amy. Here we go. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. I'm excited. This is actually our second attempt at doing this recording the first time we kind of went down a rabbit hole uh, the <laughs> completely wrong way yeah. um, and uh, it wasn't anything that we could actually put out to the public but this time well, we had um, really I'm good ex- conversation <laughs> it was a fantastic copy maybe we'll maybe if we ever do like a a paid uh, you know some type of uh, paid membership to the site maybe we'll release that there but uh, until then um, it's gonna stay uh, stay hidden away so today I know we want to talk about police culture. I know that's something that you're really passionate about and you do a lot of speaking to it. You're you're involved with educating not only the public but other agencies and other officers about how the police culture affects everyone. Um, and there's a whole bunch of parts to that. There's a lot of stuff for us to unpack. So before I get into it, though, um, I know we kind of got connected because of the Smile Conference, uh, which is the social media, internet and law enforcement. And it's all about social media. Um, and there's a new investigation side to it as well. So um, I'm excited because there's a chance that you and I may actually get to meet up. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. And uh, it'll be nice to revisit the Smile Conference because I had attended back in 2017 and it was one of the best conferences I've been to. So it's uh, a great place to connect with uh, law enforcement officers and social media practitioners um, internationally. And they have some really great content. So you're going to learn a lot if you, you know, 
attend that conference. Yeah, you're, I feel like you're really lucky. Right in in and around where you work, there are a lot of officers that are kind of leading the way as far as social media goes with engagement to the public from from police officer accounts. And it's really, really cool to see that. I think it's really it's in 2020 now, especially it's going to be taking it to the next level. And there's a lot more people that are getting involved in social media, finding that it's it's really beneficial for them to to interact with the communities. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Right now, there's um, there's a handful of officers that are really putting themselves out there on social media, um, seeing the benefits as it relates to engaging with the community. You know, being on social media has such a far, you know, much more farther outreach uh, than just your face to face interactions, um, you know, when you're out in the community. So I think that's why a lot of officers are starting to take to social media because of all the different positivities um, that are coming from it. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's just a way to break, break barriers, um, interact with people, share information, you know, show the positive work that we do within the community, because sometimes that's not displayed, you know, on news media. And it's a, it's a way to humanize the badge that, you know, showing that we're, we're human, just like everybody else. So there's a lot of uh, advantages to being so, on social media. Yeah, and I kind of teased the uh, teased the people listening here because we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the interview. I know. So, to start things off, though, and to to kind of get back to the core part of the reason why I have you on today is talking about police culture. I'm gonna I'm just gonna kind of let you jump right into it. And and what are your thoughts right now? How police culture is, and how we should be looking to to maybe make some changes to benefit not only our agencies but the community as a whole. Yeah, so I find that within our policing culture that there's still a lot of segregated ways of thinking, um, which can feel like it's still very much archaic. Um, You know, there's this mentality of, you know, warrior versus the guardian or hard versus soft, uh, enforcement versus engagement, you know, investigative versus community policing, um, you know, reactive versus proactive, property crimes versus, you know, person's crimes. So there's this you know, um, idea that maybe one is better than the other or that, you know, you're less of a police officer if you are in one of those units as opposed to another unit or, you know, you're labeled a certain way um, or you're a certain type of cop depending on what unit that you're working in. So, you know, my my thought is, you know, why can't you why can't you be both or why can't you do both? You know, why can't you go out into the community and do engagement and enjoy that? but then also be a really good investigator and also enjoy that. Um, You know, I think when you're an officer within policing, um, in order to be successful, you actually have to be well-rounded, which means, you know, you should be a little bit of everything, you know, and that's what they train us to do as well, right? Um, Being able to de-escalate in certain situations by communicating, but also using force if it's needed. Um, You know, granted, everyone's going to have their own interests, but as an organization, every unit and every type of officer is needed to be successful. So, you know, a lot of this way of thinking is really outdated and, you know, one isn't better than the other. It's just, um, they're just different, right? So if you look at, um, if you look at the Ontario use of force model, you know, they take a situation, you're constantly assessing, you're planning, and you're acting based on what someone's behavior is, right? So are they cooperative, passive resistant, uh, active resistant? Are they becoming assaultive? Or now is it 
you know, escalate it to grievous bodily harm or death. So in those moments, your um, even officer presence just showing up can can change someone else's behavior. And then on top of that, you have the officer's perception of what's going on in the situation. And then with that perception, you're going to have tactical considerations, right? So then you're, you know, you have to make a decision based on if you have to use physical control or not, or if you can still just keep communicating with somebody, because that's our number one thing is communicating, you know. Um, but if you do have to go hands-on, there's, you know, a soft and hard um, different type of techniques that you can use um, before, you know, it escalates into intermediate weapons and lethal force. So if you look at that model, it makes sense because it's constantly, the situation is constantly changing. So you have to keep changing how you respond. And when you look at the Ontario's mobilization and engagement model of community policing, it's the same structure. So in the middle, you know, you're going to have your community and your police and that relationship and you're constantly assessing, you're planning, and you're acting on what's needed. So on one side of the spectrum, you've got the enforcement and crime suppression that's very much needed, right? You go into certain um, neighborhoods um, and address precursors to crime, like, um, you know, if there's poverty, substandard housing, addictions, negative parenting, and police are going in there um, initially to lead community members into safety and community building initiatives and looking for community members who can take um, take over eventually for police. Um, but initially police are in there and it's police led. Now, if you look at the other side of the spectrum, which is the community engagement aspect, um, those communities um, need less, sorry, <clears throat> have lower need for police assistance. So um, police are still going in there, but um, it's community-based initiatives that are being led and police are just assisting um, to help with their safety, security, and well-being. But it's constantly moving and changing based on what the community needs are. So both are very much needed. The enforcement is just as important as the engagement piece. So it's not that one's better than the other. It's that they both are needed, but they just work differently within the community and what the community needs. If you're listening to this, what I'm going to do is the... Ontario use of force model and the mobilization and engagement model that Amy's speaking to, those are going to be linked right on the show notes page um, so that you can check those out and you can look at them as she's speaking and explaining them. So you can kind of get a better idea what she's talking about. Amy, just real quickly, do how did this mobilization and engagement model come about? How was it created? Because was it, was it, did you take the use of force model and then alter it to, to create this model or was it something completely separate and they just happened to, to work together i think i mean i don't know the history of or like what year it was when it came out but the ontario association of chiefs of police um collaborated on um you know when we were first implementing like the community safety model hubs and um really uh getting out into the community and doing more engagement and having a structure so that we knew um how to kind of guide uh the type of uh community engagement and, and policing within the community you know, police, community policing, really, and 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 how that's going to work for us. So, um, the two are very similar. And you know, when you're assessing certain situations, um, you know, it's needed to kind of see how it it changes from one aspect to the next. So, I think they were both designed um, similarly, like with each other, um, but one is more so 
for um, tactical, um, you know, um, consideration and um, and the other one is more so for community engagement. It's it's cool that they have a model put together. I mean, and because usually that's this is the stuff that would be of this would be more just like experience based policing where it's well, I've dealt with it. You know, it's the people that have been in the same area. They've been policing in the same neighborhood for months or years and they get to know the community. This is kind of a guideline for for those new officers, for those people that are maybe going into a community that they may not know. It's, hey, these are some some serious considerations that you have to make before you start, you know, switching to the enforcement side of things. There's there's a lot of engagement that can be done beforehand to probably mitigate a lot of those situations from occurring in the first place. Is that the is that kind of the premise Mm -hmm. of it? Yeah, it just gives you some guidelines. And I, I this is important. I mean, I don't even know if every officer is aware that we have stuff like this that's out there that can help guide them do their job better. And it's just another tool, right? When you're dealing with the community or in your line of work, like in your job, you want to make sure that you're knowledgeable, um, you know how to do your job effectively. And, you know, what are you bringing to the table to the community when you're out there engaging with them, right? Um yeah, so I would, you know, I would ask every officer to take a look at, at the model and, you know, see kind of what the breakdown is and, you know, how they see themselves in those different roles. I I know right now there's somebody there's somebody listening to this and they're like, I know how to do my job. I don't need a piece of paper to tell me how to talk to people and things like that. And I think that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning is there's a there's a the culture in policing right now, it's kind of black and white. It's it's hard versus soft, like you said. Um, there's the the old guard and the new guard. Where do we? How can agencies? How can instructors? How can um, you know the policymakers in these agencies start building these programs in so that it's not as not as much of a shock to the system when these types of programs get rolled out to to all the officers? Well, I, I feel like a lot of police officers, or police services do implement programs and they have training and education sometimes it comes down to individual perceptions you know um of the individual officer and like what they value right so that's why it's just important for to remind officers too that yeah you know enforcement is a necessary part of policing you know it ensures compliance with the laws uh, aids in preserving the peace prevents further crimes brings justice to victims and their families it protects our community and people and their property, but community engagement is also a necessity uh, component of policing. And true engagement is more than just showing up and having conversations with somebody out on the street. It means giving members of the public a voice and how their communities are policed. So proactive engagement um, of communities are through forums, advisory groups, events, meetings, um, Participation in community functions, you know, all of these things are very important activities at the leadership and community level within policing. So actually having real collaboration and and forming partnerships within the community are essential aspects of the community policing itself. So, um, you know, and a lot of um, a lot of the community engagement um, aspects are really proactive, too, and preventative in its nature because you're educating the community on how they can empower themselves to also 
protect themselves, right, from crime. It builds trust and it encourages community members to actually help in the fight to lower crime rates together because at the end of the day, police can't do it alone. It's not about, you know, what are police doing? It's we need these collaborative partnerships and the community is a huge um, help when it comes to um, bringing crime rates down and, and having their involvement. So, you know, as an officer, you know, we do our job and, you know, it holds many different aspects. It's not just making arrests or the enforcement aspect. There's all these other uh, parts, too, that are just as important and it's needed, right? So it's just getting that officer in that mindset, reminding them that it's, you know, one's not better than the other. Yeah, okay, you might somebody might have a preference on where they want to work. But if you want to be successful in this in this job, you have to look at the big picture and know that, um you know, everything is interconnected and they're both equal. Going back to the dichotomy of police culture, and we you mentioned a whole bunch right at the beginning. Uh, one of the ones that I know that we wanted to speak to um, was proactive versus reactive. And the crime prevention models that are developed and crime prevention in general is a big part of what you're speaking about there. Do you want to maybe share a little bit about crime prevention and how you found that um, the initiatives that you're doing and the way that they can impact communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now, you know, the policing culture, like the most agencies are trying to develop their officers to be critical thinkers, to be problem solvers, not to be call chasers or report takers to be more than that. Right. Um, Crime prevention is every officer's responsibility. Um, educating the community is everybody's responsibility. It's an effective tool. Education is an effective tool in preventing crime because when you share it with the community, it empowers them on knowing how not to become re-victimized, how they can protect themselves and their families. So, if, for example, if you're going to a break and enter call, you know, as an officer, you show up on scene, okay, you get all the details, you take the report. What else are you providing to that person so that they feel safe again, right? Because it's not just about crime, but it's perceived, you know, perceived risk and safety. Um, you want to reinstill that and and they, they don't have fear, you know, that they're going to be re-victimized. You know, what tools are you giving them? Are you uh, giving them um, other tips that they can, how to secure their doors and windows, um, you know, getting to know their neighbors, um, all these other tips that we have in crime prevention um, to prevent it from happening in the first place the best we can because crimes are op crimes are of opportunity so if we can arm people with knowledge on how they can you know we you know we're not saying you you can prevent every single crime out there no but it's about how can we be safer and prevent crimes of opportunity by educating people on what they can do better in their daily lives um, so that they, be they don't become targets how do you think SEPTED plays into all of this? And now for SEPTED is, is an acronym, uh, C-P-T-E-D, Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design. I know uh, Ontario has a model built out for it, but I mean, you can find them all around the world um, in, in a multiple uh, organizations and for different reasons. How does it play into policing um, as far as what, what you guys are doing in Ontario? Um, it's definitely, it's definitely knowledge that every officer should have, um, or anyone who's thinking about getting into law enforcement. Um, 
that's what's going to give you the skills needed to kind of think outside the box and look at a certain situation or look at a property. So crime prevention through environmental design, you know, you're looking at the built environment, you're looking at, okay, well, if there's a particular crime trend happening in this neighborhood or at this particular store location or at this complex or wherever at the school, what else is contributing to it? So it gets you to assess the environment, um, you know, geographically to see what else, what could be contributing to it. And, and then you're making um, changes to that environment um, to try to prevent crime from happening. Um, so, you know, when you're meeting with people in the community and you have this knowledge, you're able to give them preventative tips. You can give them suggestions on how they can actually prove, improve their safety and security by giving them simple recommendations. Um, so, you know, uh, spending a lot of time in crime prevention, I, I conducted a lot of security audits and, you know, even at at the city level, you know, you're liaising with um, every, so every industry you think of too, like everybody needs crime prevention, whether it's the trucking industry, whether it's, you know, at schools, whether it's businesses, pharmacies, like every industry needs crime prevention. And when you have that knowledge where you can, you know, walk into a situation, assess it um, because of the training and skills that you have as it relates to, you know, SEPTED, you're able to give um, proper recommendations. And again, working at the city level, you know, there's a lot of um, parks that you're looking at, or you're working with city designers and planners, even at the design phase before people even build to look at what issues could pose, you know, from designing this particular, let's say, public washroom over here, you know, will there be, um, you know, is it, in an area that's, uh, that's, you know, isolated and, you know, people can commit robberies and there's no, um, you know, sight lines or, you know, different things like that. So when you're collaborating and working um, with the community about some of the information that we know as officers, because we, we're in it every day, we see the crime trends. Um, it gives us a better, um, you know, like what's the point of having all this knowledge if we're not sharing it with people? So that's why when you're collaborating and you're giving this information, they now can arm themselves better and make decisions on how to prevent crime that way. That's awesome. In in my mind, as you're as you're saying that, I remember back in Saskatoon when they were building out a whole bunch of new development areas, um, and I was kind of inner working with the the city police at the time. They they had a lot of these meetings where they had. Um, you know, they were developing the new parks, and the new areas, and three of the major topics they brought up were ingress and egress routes, lighting and line of sight. So like what you said is, is, you know, is the area well lit? Um, is there immediate access to and from that area? And can people see mm -hmm. it from from multiple spots? Or is it isolated? And, um, and usually when you have uh, a failure in, in any one of those three areas, there's a uh, higher propensity for crime to occur in those areas. Same thing with housing. Like you had said, like if you, if you show up to a house that had just had a B and E and you notice that the person had entered through the front door, but the person doesn't have any porch lights and they have a vine, a vine wall that's up and blocking the entire view of their front porch so that nobody from the street can even see what's happening. I mean, it's more of an inviting area for that, that criminal mm -hmm. to, to gain access. So sharing, yeah. but I mean, that's the thing is as officers, as you guys are responding to these calls, you see it all the time. And, and even subconsciously, you may not even, cause you may not even register it consciously, but you see these things all the time. And what you're saying is take that information that you have and just share it. So the next time you show up to that call, take yeah. that extra 10 minutes and, and talk to that victim and say, Hey, listen, I mm -hmm. noticed this, this, and this. 
you know, these are a few quick changes that can probably help prevent this in the future. Is that is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know we probably think it's common knowledge for a lot of people, but, you know, some people don't think like officers and they don't think like criminals because that's not what they're doing every day, right? We're in it. And a lot of these... um a lot of these suggestions that you can give to people are not are cost effective. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Um, it's like simple solutions, kind of like what you said. If there's, um, you know, overgrown vines in the way and it's blocking neighbors to be able to see sight lines, you know, a lot of people want, you know, it's privacy versus security. People want all their privacy um, from their neighbors, but then they are also blocking out wit- witness potential. So, you know, the the more privacy you have, the less secure you are, really. You know, if you think about a sept head fence, you want to be able to see through it. So that way, if someone's breaking into your house, your neighbor's like, oh, that looks suspicious. I'm going to call, um, you know, in for my neighbor. So it's just, you know, just stuff like that. And again, it's like as an officer, what are you like? What service are you providing? How are you showing up in your job? What information can you provide to people that's going to help your community actually be safer? Like utilize your time when you're at the call. Um, you know, do your best job and educate yourself. Like the, in this job, you have to um, you have to constantly be growing and improving yourself to be a better officer and provide better service, mm-hmm. right? Another thing I find too is um, that's where you know it's an interesting time to be in policing right now because of um, all the all the changes that are are on the forefront. Uh, one of them also being evidence based policing. So, which is another, um, I guess, pillar within uh, police culture that I'm I'm advocating for, um, you know, an evidence-based policing approach. It's when police officers and staff create, review, and use the best available evidence to inform and challenge different policies, practices, and decisions that they're making. Um, police science is needed to enhance the knowledge, skill sets, and experience that we have. Um, it can't just be based on on our experience alone because we have bias. Like we don't work every day. You know, we might know, we might think we know a, a particular area or crime trend, but, you know, we have days off too. And there's other people that are working. So we're not there 24 seven. So we can have an idea, but we don't, we don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of what's happening. So we can't be, we can't base our decisions on our assumptions or, because this is how we've always done things. You know, we have to challenge the status quo of within policing on how we've always been doing things or how can we improve, how can we enhance what we're already doing. And that's what evidence-based policing does for us. It's actually using research to, you know, so that we know what actually works and then implementing that and making our decisions based on that, which is now giving us a foundation to stand on. Um, And it's, you know, it improves our legitimacy, um, our fairness, especially when we're, we're seen sometimes as a cost resource. Um, you know, people always want to be, they want to, you want to uh, cut costs all the time, right? So this way, when you're basing it on research and evidence and saying, yeah, actually we're doing this because look, you know, these are the benefits and our research shows this. So this is why we're doing that, you know? With all of that, I mean, is there, if, I mean, we're up here in Canada and now, and obviously there's a lot of people that listen to this in the, in the U S and around the world, where, where can people start finding 
this this resource are there are there online resources in canada in the u.s and and things that people can access from anywhere or where is the best place if if an officer wants to start researching this if they want to start getting into the weeds in in this evidence-based policing where's the best place for them to go absolutely um so there's evidence-based policing societies that are that are international. So we have one here in Canada, um, the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. There's also the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing in the States. Um, there's one in for Australia and New Zealand. There's also one in the UK. And I believe there's one, um, uh, I think somewhere else, but I can't remember exactly where. So it's starting to spread. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some of the links that if people are internationally want to look that up and see what it's all about um, to try to get involved. Again, it's the new um, way that policing is evolving towards um, kind of like the medical field where, you know, (laughs) believe it or not, right back in the day in the medical field, people did what they, you know, they were, it was based on assumptions and they weren't testing and they weren't doing research, but it sounds preposterous now. Like how would we do, you know, how would we give medication or, or provide certain um, treatments to patients if it wasn't tested? So it's the same thing, like within the community, like we're also in, you know, just similar to healthcare. Well, we're, we're front lines dealing with the community. We're serving people. So how do we know if we are, you know, causing more harm or doing more good based on, you know, um, different resources or programs and even for our own people, right. Even in uh, internally within our own organization. So that's why it's really important for officers to, or people who are thinking to get into policing, start thinking this way. Again, um, police organizations are looking for, you know, to problem solvers, people who can come together and, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at not our outputs, but our outcomes. Are we actually being effective in what we're trying to do? And evidence-based policing helps us do that. I think the change in technology has has played a huge role in that as well. I think you'd probably agree because, you know, 50 years ago, if you were an officer in New York, I mean, you didn't know what was going on in Texas. You didn't know what was going on in Vancouver. You didn't know what was going on in, uh, you know, Sydney, Australia. Like there was, there wasn't that open communication that we have now. Mm-hmm. So now that there's all these resources where all the data and analytics are being tracked and recorded, and now this can all be shared and compiled and and uh, indexed and evaluated by experts, I think we're starting to come into that point now where we have all this information over the last 20, 30 years, and now people can start seeing trends and patterns and why not use that information, right? It's not, it's no, now you don't have to play as much guesswork or put as much guesswork into what we're doing because it's been done. I mean, there's, there's probably situations that come up all the time that it's never happened before, but let's be honest, the vast majority of things that are happening now happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, it, and it's funny, you know, when you start connecting uh, on a global scale, you start realizing that everybody's having the same conversation. So this isn't just, you know, a local problem or, you know, a local, um, you know, uh, community issue or whatever the topic might be. You start to find uh, when you start connecting with other people internationally within the same industry, you're like, oh, they're also seeing these challenges or, or they've actually come up with a solution. And, oh, how did they, how did, how did that work for them? And, yeah, you start information sharing and, and it, it starts to, 
just open your make you open your eyes a little bit more on you know how as a police organization you know with where you're at how can you know you maybe implement some of that too and kind of going along the lines too with what you were saying with um the aspects of social media and it's funny you know that you bring that up because i find you know with that that split you know mentality of thinking again when it comes to like hard versus soft engagement versus enfor- enforcement uh, the same mentality is towards actually law enforcement using social media in the first place. I find that um, there's a disconnect between uh, police officers who have been in the profession for a really long time, you know, close to 30 years or so, and then the newer officers coming in and the fact that they're, you know, trying to use social media to engage with the community. You know, there's a lot of them that think, you know, you shouldn't be on social media you know, you should just be out there making arrests, you know, real cops are making arrests. Like, why are you, you know, get off that thing. Why are you on that? You know, why are you posting or, you know, why are you dancing or why are you taking a picture of somebody? And they just don't understand it. But for a lot of officers, it's their way of connecting to the community. Um, you know, because we do more than just making arrests, like I mentioned, um, there's more to this job and times have changed. A large percentage of information sharing and relationship building in today's day and age are cultivated through the use of technology. So social media is not going anywhere. Um, you know, so why are, why shouldn't we be using it to for all the benefits that, uh, you know, that's out there um, as an organization? So it is important um, for police services, I find, to be attuned with the changing times. It's just as important to be attuned with what's changing in our communities, just as it is important to keep up on our police, our policing skills with up-to-date training, right? It's no different than that. If we want to stay successful in our communities, we have to be able to be flexible and change with them as well. You know, it's really interesting. As you were talking there, I was pulling up my TikTok. Now for people, so... Ah, uh, you have a TikTok I, no, here's okay. So yeah, yeah. Now everyone's laughing at me. So here's the thing. It's uh, <laughs> obviously because of the podcast, the, the goal is to try to reach out to as many people as possible. Now we don't, I don't actually have anything yeah. posted on there, but I have access to it. And one of the reasons why was because um, going back to smile conference, um, when I was speaking with Lori Stevens there, um, I had mentioned things about like, you know, I wonder if somebody was speaking to you about TikTok because it is it's the fastest growing social media platform in the it world is. and going back to what yeah. we were just saying and i'm going to i'm going to bring uh i'm going to bring him up here um and i'm sure he won't mind but um uh narsino out of toronto does has an amazing social media following what he does yeah i heard i heard he's famous he's on tiktok tiktok <laughs> famous but here's the thing so and here's going back to your point his his tiktok ha- handle is at officer arsino and I'm I'm looking through the posts here and just so people can get a grasp of what we're talking about. Um, I'm looking at these posts. These are the numbers of people that have viewed his content and this is per post. So 66.6 thousand, 321.5 thousand, 2.2 million, 1 million. You get the idea. Those are each post that he's putting out there. Now, when we're talking about engaging with the community, I mean, holy shit, that's your, and what he does is a lot of his stuff is it, he has some, a lot of it's humor based, but it's also educational and it's Mm -hmm. sharing things with the community and it's, and it's personalizing the badge and, and letting people know that, you know, 
not all cops are just there to to kick in doors and arrest people. And I think that's really important. And it's when you talk about numbers like that, it's it can be surprising to some people. He's not he's not some 22 year old Instagram model out of L.A. He's a active duty police officer out of Toronto, Canada, who's getting 2.2 million views per post that he makes. And that's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, and you know what, though, when you're using social media, so people expect officers to be a certain way, like you, you expect them to make rest, you expect them to, you know, crowd control and do their job. But when you're on social media, and you're posting the human side of things, right, you're humanizing the badge by maybe dancing, or maybe you're doing a TikTok, you know, lip sync, or you're doing something different to share that knowledge that you have in a different way, right? That's what's building transparency because you're like, oh, I can relate to that person. They're just like me. They have the same interests or, you know, um, it's just it's building trust. It's building respect uh, within the community, Um, you know, especially in a time where there's increasing negative news media coverage, right, and public scrutiny, because a lot of the stuff that gets published in news media is all the negative stuff, right? So social media is a platform that, you know, officers can use to show all the positive work that they're doing, all the volunteering that they're doing, all of the stuff behind the scenes that a lot of people don't get to see. And if that means, you know, maybe being goofy or having an entertaining video occasionally, that's going to catch people's eyes or attentions. Well, now you have their attention. Like you said, you've got 2.2 million or however many people and that platform, you now can share uh, you know, a message that has that that's for the greater good. You know what I mean? Something that has um, social impact, something that's going to help people. Maybe they need to hear something that day, right? Other than just um, going out there and making arrests. So again, when you're out on social media, that's an aspect that we need to do is humanize the badge so that people understand that we're more similar then, you know, we're more sim- we're similar, just as similar as they are, right? We are the community as well. We're, we're, we're people. And like you said, there, it's got such a much farther outreach, you know, other than your day-to-day interactions. When you're posting on a platform like that, the amount of outreach that you have to be able to share that message is huge. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying before um, when it comes to, you know, the culture and, you know, the, you know, the officers that have been around 20 30 years and i know i know just talking to guy i know i have a lot of family members and friends that have been in policing for a long time and you know it's always like well kids don't re- you know people don't respect the police the way they used to and and all those types of things well here here's a fun fact for everybody 98.5 percent, and that's that's a completely made up number of people um, <laughs> that are 20 and below are on social media daily right if they have mm-hmm. a phone so if those are the people that you're, you know, having issues with because you can't engage with them and they don't, you know, they're not engaging with the police, they're not respecting police anymore, you have to be proactive, like we were saying before, and go after them. And how are you going to do that is hit them where their attention is, which is on social media. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept. If that's where the audience is, right, if that's how marketing works, right? If I want to get somebody mm-hmm. to buy my product, I have to f- Go to them where they are spending their time and attention. Mm-hmm. Same thing with this. Just because yeah. it's community engagement and you're a police officer or a police agency, the the same rules still apply. 
you have to find them where they are, where their attention is and engage them in something that makes them interested to, to listen to what you have mm-hmm. to say. And if you don't, then you're just going to keep getting the same results. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, the funny thing is that there's a lot of haters out there, though, <laughs> <laughs> not from the com- not from the community, but internally, there's officers that don't agree with it or understand it. So there's a lot of people that don't like what he's doing. And there's a lot of officers that don't like what any officers are doing on social media. They don't think they belong there. So, you know, I, I think it's going to come with the territory. You know, if you're willing to put yourself out there when you're creating content, it's easy for people to sit on the sidelines and criticize, right? They might not agree with it. Um, but these are the same people that often complain about stuff and do nothing and they don't take action, right? Um these are people that are trying to think outside the box and build community relationships um, again, but it comes back to that mentality of, um, you know, you know, I don't agree with that or, you know, that's, you know, officers shouldn't be doing that or, you know, that's not real policing work. Like, what is that? You know, I actually had um, a course that I was teaching to other officers and we give out these surveys at the end so that we can get, you know, feedback so we can improve our course. And I'm reading this one survey I got back and it's just one thing after the next is this negative, negative um, comments. And then at the end, I saw less posts on Instagram, more arrests. So I start laughing. I'm like, okay, so clearly this person doesn't like me just because I'm on Instagram or just because I'm on social media. Um, But clearly I'm doing something right because this person knows who I am and I have never met this person. I've never seen them before, but I've affected them to the point that they felt they needed to share that with me. But, you know, that's one thing I didn't realize, you know, when you put yourself out there, um, there are going to be some people that, you know, are not going to agree with it. And you have to be okay with that too, because your passion and your purpose is larger than that. Right. So, you know, that's not who my audience is. My posts are for people who are interested in learning, who are interested in connecting, who want to spread positivity. So, and there's a way more positivity than the negative people or the trolls or, you know, the, the side remarks. Right. Um, and so I always stay positive. It's always important, um, to keep that neutral mentality too. I mean, obviously you're not going to take abuse online, you know, if somebody's making comments to you online, um, you would treat it like any other situation if it was like a bullying incident, right? You would capture the conversation, take a screenshot, report to the social media site, get them removed or blocked. Um, And, you know, and then you just engage with the community. If somebody makes a comment, I still engage with them unless it's hurtful, hateful, or obscene, um, then I'll disengage, right? So I actually just took a, a social media course recently. I've had a few, but I just took one recently um, back in December with, uh, over at the Toronto police college, which is run by Lori McCann and Scott, uh, Scott Mills. Uh, they have a three day, uh, Toronto police college, social media and communications course course, which is amazing. So if anyone's local in the, in the, in the area, I'll, I'll drop their, uh, information that way you can reach out to them if you want to get trained. But what I, what I liked, what they said is you're ultimately walking the digital social media beat. So, just as you would patrol out on foot out into your community, you're doing the same thing, but the only difference is that you're on social media. You get the same type of engagement. You're answering questions. It's the same type of engagement. The only difference is that you have a farther outreach and you're on social media. I think that's 
yeah, I haven't had a chance to to speak with Lori yet, and um, but I'm excited because I I have um, spoken with her over email about having her on the show. So that'll be an exciting uh, follow up show to mm-hmm. this for sure. Two things that I really wanted to touch on that kind of just popped into my mind as you were talking there. So one, obviously the uh, the officer that was attending your course um, didn't doesn't understand how algorithms in social media works because it doesn't matter if it's positive or negative interaction. Um, all they care about is that there is interaction and that helps make you more famous and get out to more people. So that's funny. Um, the other, <laughs> yeah. the other thing um, is, and this is something that I noticed and maybe just real quickly, you can speak to this. So if there's anybody listening to this and you're like, well, you know what? Maybe I will start a social media handle or, or do something and it doesn't matter if it's on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whatever, Snapchat. If, if you're an officer and you're going to start doing this, um, one thing that I've noticed in all of the major social media accounts run by yourself and by all the others is that there's a very prominent disclaimer right in the bios basically saying hey this is not a this is not an emergency line like this isn't monitored please contact 911 kind of thing is that that and that's something that i've noticed in a lot of these and there's a reason for it can you just explain that real quickly yeah so i mean we're working full time and being on social media isn't you know it's not something we're doing all day long right even though i'm sure some of the haters think we are um on it all day but you know, posting that you're just reminding the public that you're not available 24 seven and you're not on your social media platform 24 seven. So you might not get back to somebody right away because, um, you know, we're still busy people. If it, if there is an emergency, yeah, you want to dial 911. Um, but what I used to put on my social media sites was no direct messages, please. Um, but I've removed that because I was still engaging with people anyway. And if people sent me a message and they had a question, I was answering it. Um, I've helped a lot of people um, with recruiting questions. I've had all sorts of different invites to come out to the community to do talks. Um, there's so many benefits of being on social media, but it is important to have some type of terms of reference or a disclaimer, um, just allowing people to know that um, to call 911 if there is an emergency. And again, because you are an officer, if somebody does try to report information to you, or if let's say um, there's an emergency, like um, maybe somebody talked about hurting themselves or they were, they had suicidal thoughts, that's something that you want to share with your with the appropriate unit if you're off work or if you're at work, um, tell your supervisor and treat it like you would a normal call and have somebody go out there and, and help them. But again, it's not a reporting station, you know, through the social media platform. You always want to call 911 if it if there's an emergency. Great point, though, to bring that up. Yeah, it was. it's interesting. And what you said there about, you know, there's people reaching out to, you know, these officers that have these accounts about recruitment, about, hey, you know, I saw you on here and maybe I want to be a police officer. How do I go about doing that? And it brings me back to a conversation I had. And actually the episode um, is with Adam Wilson and Steve Strickland, both out of North Carolina. And we had talked in, in our conversation about the, the difficulty that their agency is having in recruitment. 
And I think, and what he was saying was across the United States, especially um, recruitment is at a very, very low level. It's very hard for agencies to, to drive those high recruitment numbers. Um, I don't know what the case is here in Canada per se. I know in Winnipeg, we just opened up um, a second thing. The last year they did a recruitment drive and I think there was over a thousand applicants. Um, And I believe that's that's quite a lot. Um, I don't know the way it is in in some of the agencies in Ontario or if you guys have that same issue. But from what you were saying is this may be a way that these agencies can start driving more engagement with potential uh, new recruits. So that's something interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I think, too, like when you're on social media, you're if you know, essentially you're showcasing what policing is all about and uh, and parts of policing. Um, you know, I've had people reach out to me saying, I, you know, I want to be a police officer. I want to come, you know, work with you or I want to do what you're doing. Like you're, you know, you're very inspiring and I want to be that type of police officer too. This is a perfect time to be involved, you know, in policing and, and working in law enforcement because there are so many positive changes that are happening and people who are getting hired, you know, they have that capacity to make the changes that are needed. And, um, yeah, social social media is a great tool for recruiting and um, um, just like outreach and information sharing about what policing is all about. You know, I've given people tips on the process of becoming a police officer. I've explained um, the different testing that we, we need here in Ontario. I've answered questions, talked about fitness, uh, what type of books they should, you know, get for studying and how to deal with interviews. Um Again, whatever, if people reach out to me, I try to make time for them. And, and, um, actually I use it for my content too. If I'm constantly getting the same questions over and over again, make a post about it. Cause if one person has the question, then there's probably a ton of other people that have the same question. So it helps me actually build my content when people reach out to me. That's a great point. Speaking about your content <laughs> and what you're doing. What, uh, where can uh, people find you? I mean, I know you the first time I was introduced to what you were doing. I knew you as the yoga cop. Um, not because I personally do yoga. I can barely touch my toes, but, um, I got, uh, I got put onto your account and was following you from the get go. Uh, love what you were putting out there. So can you let everybody know what, where you are on, uh, on social media, where they can find you and what you're doing? Yeah. So, um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, my handle is the Yoga Cop. Uh, I picked that because um, even though I'm a police officer, I'm still um, I still have personal interests, and I wanted something that would showcase um, you know who I am and some of the other stuff that I do outside of policing. Um, but it's also connected with policing still <laughs> because um, I do a lot of advocating um, for mental health and wellness as well as it relates to yoga, breath work, and meditation. So what I'm trying to do is um, bring that knowledge to our policing community um, based on my own personal experiences and just knowledge and education. I've been on a, on a wellness journey for some time, and I've been doing a lot of the research myself so that I can not only help myself last 30 years in this career, but I also want to um, help bring that those tools um, to build resiliency to other officers as well. So that's one of the aspects. Um, and then I also advocate for, you know, the crime prevention, ev- evidence-based policing, also equity and inclusion as it relates to gender, race, and rank. Um, I'm working with the Advancing We in Policing, 
which is an Ontario working group um, within Ontario. And what we're doing is hosting workshops um, to have, you know, meaningful discussions about the barriers that still exist uh, within policing and collect research data. So we have uh, a workshop actually coming up this week in Niagara Falls from February the 19th to the 21st. It's going to be the first of its kind. We have, um, it's three days. The first day is all men. And um, the, the second day and the third day is going to be um, combined with both uh, men and women. And it's for all genders to have these uh, important conversations. We're going to have Dr. Linda Duxbury come down from the Carleton University with her research team and collect um, st- um, stats on what some of the results are. And with that, we're going to... Um, put together a research document that's going to be presented to the Ontario Chiefs of Police Board, and hopefully we can disseminate that, disseminate that to all police uh, chiefs across Ontario. Um, I'm also involved with the International Society of Crime Prevention Practitioners, uh, which is the, the crime, some of the crime prevention um, stuff that I'm doing. We're, um, we, we organize training sessions and um, a symposium every two years, but training sessions uh, every year on educating other crime prevention practitioners in their field. So not just law enforcement, but other practitioners as well. And uh, we give them an international um, crime prevention designation after they complete the course. Actually, we have a symposium coming up in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, November the 19th to the 20th. Um, Also, um, I know I mentioned the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing earlier. They have a website. It's cansab.net. You can actually sign up for free and gain access to their membership. They have evidence-based policing papers, research funding database. They've got online um, evidence-based policing resources, hand-on, hands-on like how-to research tutorials and stuff like that that can help people get started on uh, just understanding evidence-based policing and what they can do at their own services. Um, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing has a conference coming up June the 1st and 2nd in Washington, D.C. Um, you can just go to their website, Ameri- uh, americansebp.org, um, to sign up for that. And there's another one in June coming up, uh, the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. They have an annual symposium at the George Mason University, and that's going to be June the 29th in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, USA. And uh, as I mentioned, Laurie McCann and Scott Mills um, over at the Toronto Police Service have an amazing uh, social media course if officers are looking to get started. Um, I know you mentioned the Smile Conference as well. Laurie Stevens, she also runs um, Laws Communications. So if there's organizations that maybe don't really have social media set up yet or they want to learn to maybe use it um, to their advantage a little bit better. Um, she does consultations, uh, helps write per- procedures, helps develop content for their agency um, and train their people uh, appropriately so they know how to effectively use it. Um, yeah, so those are um, my five things that I'm kind of advocating for. Um and I'm also part of the um, First Responder Mindfulness Network. I know my list is going on here. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I got my work cut out for me. I'm going to be, these are going to be some massive show notes. It's all good. Uh, yeah, I'll send you all the links. Uh, yeah, First Responder Mindfulness Network. We're a group of officers um, within, not just officers, but like first responders um, and researchers 
Um, and what we're trying to do is push mindfulness within our industries um, and educate them on using that information on how we can implement um, training and education for um, our industry as it relates to uh, dealing with stress management better. So yeah, so I'm, I'm involved in a few things. <laughs> Just what it sounds like. I mean, I thought my schedule was busy. I mean, I can't imagine. Um, no, that's awesome. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have to rename the episode to. So today's episode with Amy Boudreaux is uh, evidence-based policing and law enforcement and social media and gender equality and inclusion and first responder wellness and mental health and crime prevention. <laughs> <laughs> So no, I think that's I think that's awesome. All those resources are going to go on, like I said, yeah. on the show notes page. All the links, all the stuff that we've talked about today, everyone's going to have access to those. Um, I know you you've sent most of those out to me already, so that's easy for us to put on there for everybody to take a look at. Yeah, um, and uh, I'm excited that there's a chance that you and I can actually sit down and uh, uh, have a have a drink or a, I don't know a, some type of health shake. You're probably into I don't something that I can, my body will reject uh, wholeheartedly. <laughs> Lemon and lemon and ginger shots. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> it burns. <laughs> it's good for that's you. That's <laughs> what I want. Um, well, uh, but at, uh, at the Smile Conference, and um, I just really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Obviously, people now know how busy you are, and uh, it's an honor for me to have you on the show, Amy. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate um, you know just talking with you and sharing information to your listeners. That's awesome. Well, I'm happy to have you back on whenever uh, you free up some time, sometime 2024. And uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll. I can uh, always make time for you, okay? <laughs> awesome. Perfect. I will, I'm going to hold you to that. So okay. thanks again, and uh, we will talk yeah. to you soon. Yeah, this was fun. All right. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Tactical Breakdown. Of course, if you want to learn more about Amy, Check out the show notes page just below your podcast player or at thebreakdown.ca. We're going to have all that information there for you. If you are enjoying this content, if you like what you're hearing, please consider liking and subscribing to the podcast. I'm enjoying bringing all of this content to you each and every week. There's going to be so much more coming up and some special announcements coming up prior to June 2020. So stay tuned for that. And if you're already in the future, you know what happens. So you're already excited about it. So that's it for me. Thanks again for being here, and we'll talk to you next time. Stay safe.